What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Five-hour tea with caffeine from green tea leaves. It's delicious, energizing, and comes in three amazing flavors. With zero sugar and four calories, it fits your life. With its compact size and portability, it goes where you go. To the campsite, the hiking trail, the beach, without weighing you down. Five-hour tea. Caffeine from green tea leaves. Release your natural side. From the makers of Five-Hour Energy. For more information, visit fivehourenergy.com. Calm. Take the baseline out. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Welcome, welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Hardwood Knox podcast. Uh, today it is going to be just me, Andy D. Bailey. I don't know why I threw the D in there. Maybe just because I'm so used to seeing my own Twitter handle. Um, as you maybe have been able to tell already, this is the first time I've done a solo show. Dan is uh, at a wedding this week, and my planned guest uh, for today's show has w- was not able to make it. So today I decided to just roll solo, mailbag style, and thanks to you guys, I got tons and tons of questions to answer. I, I'm not even sure I'm going to be able to get to all of them within this recording, Um so hopefully if I if I don't answer it here, maybe I'll be able to answer it for you over on. Sudafed wants to know, has congestion ever hit you in the face? Does the pressure make it feel like you're underwater? Does it feel like your head is in outer space? Mission control, we have a sinus congestion problem. Well, there's help. Try new Sudafed PE Day Plus Night for maximum strength congestion relief. So you have helped to beat back congestion. Try new Sudafed PE, day plus night. Open up. Use only as directed. Twitter, but thanks again for all the participation. Um, As always, I want to remind you guys, just like we do every show, um, I assume if you're listening, you're probably already subscribed, but go ahead and leave us a rating and a review. That really helps with the uh, iTunes charts. And uh, my typical suggestion to everyone Steal friends and family phones, uh, subscribe them to the podcast, rate and review it, and then return it before they even know what happened. Um, that'll all help us. But seriously, we really, really appreciate everyone who listens, and um, especially you, you new listeners, and especially you old listeners. I shouldn't, I shouldn't throw you under the bus. Um, anyway, let's get right to it. So today I put out the old mailbag tweet, respond to this with your NBA-related questions, and I got some good stuff back. Uh, Tyreek D. Butler. His handle is at T-Y-D-B-U-T-L-E-R. And his question is, what happens to Love's production once IT is back in full force? So uh, most of you who are NBA fans are probably well aware that Isaiah Thomas is set to make his debut on Tuesday. That's the day that I'm recording this podcast. And he'll almost, oh, he will be on a minutes restriction, at least at first. I, I don't know how long that will last. So in the short term... I wouldn't expect it to to affect love too much. Um, I think my first response to this question when I first saw it was, 
yeah, he'll obviously take a little bit of a hit. I mean, Isaiah Thomas uses a lot of possessions, at least he has historically. And, um, you know, Kevin Love, his numbers took quite a dip when he came to Cleveland and he suddenly had to play with LeBron and Kyrie Irving. He was no longer the top dog. But I dug a little bit deeper into it. Um, this season, Kevin Love's actually taking fewer shots per game than he did last season. And he's just barely, uh, he, he took barely more shots um, or barely more shots this season per 36 minutes. So really the, the amount of shots he's taking is about the same. Um, his boost in his numbers this season, I, it, it looks to me like it has a lot more to do with efficiency uh, than opportunity. This is, so his effective field goal percentage his first three seasons in Cleveland was just barely over 50. It was 50.6. This season it's 55.7. And I wouldn't think that Isaiah Thomas, who will demand, I think, a lot of uh, defensive attention, to me, I don't think that's going to hurt his efficiency. If anything, there, there might be some evidence to say that it'll help it. Um, you know, he should get more open looks now with, with more people keyed in on the point guard. Um, you know, right now he's doing a lot of what he's doing with Jose Calderon as the point guard. So defenses don't have to, I mean, no offense to Jose Calderon, but defenses don't have to pay a ton of attention to him. They will with Isaiah Thomas. Uh, the caveat there is Love has spent some time playing with a sort of ball-dominant point guard this season, and of course that was Derrick Rose for the first little bit of the season. And uh, before Rose left the lineup with an injury, Love's effective field goal percentage was 49.6, so even lower than those first three seasons in Cleveland. After Rose went down, or, or since Rose went down, Love's effective field goal percentage is 57.9. So, so maybe there is some evidence that says Love needs to handle the ball a little bit more to, to find the kind of shooting rhythm that, that makes him an effective player. Um, but I, I, in answer to the question, I'm going to say it, it takes maybe a slight dip, but I'm, I'm not expecting too much. I feel like Love and LeBron have officially sort of figured out how to play with each other, and I would expect that to continue. Okay, our next question, Brian Sampson. He is at Brian Sampson NBA. Uh, he's a NBA math contributor, so he's a he's a good follow. Tyreek is too. Um, the Timberwolves have a legit shot at the three seed, and he's got a period at the end of that sentence. So I, I assume it's a declaration from Brian. I'm going to treat it as though, as though it's a question. Um, do the Timberwolves have a legit shot at the three seed? And I think they do. Um, right now, they're only three and a half games behind Houston, who who is number two, and I think they're a game and a half behind San Antonio. Um, Harden, James Harden is going to be out for a little bit. He's got a strained hamstring. I think it's a grade two strain. And that could be, that could be, you know, four or five weeks without James Harden, who is, Chris Paul is amazing, but James Harden is clearly still Houston's best player. Um, This is super, super small sample size. But when Harden and Paul are both off the floor, Houston, and this is according to NBAWowie.com, Houston is scoring 132 points per 100 possessions, which is bananas. Like, <laughs> the best offenses in the league do about 110 points per 100 possessions. So that's crazy. Now, here's an even crazier part. Um, when those two are off the floor, Houston's allowing 139 points per 100 possessions. So they're still a pretty distinct minus, despite, I don't know how they're scoring at that rate. Again, I, I told you it's a super small sample size, so that has a lot to do with it. But the point I'm trying to make is, with James Harden out, 
Chris Paul can't play 48 minutes a game. There's going to be, over the next month to six weeks, there's going to be a lot of games when the Rockets don't have James Harden or Chris Paul on the floor. It's going to be really interesting to see how they survive. That's it's going to a lot is going to be asked of Eric Gordon now. Um, I, I think he'll certainly see a boost in production, but I, I think overall the team performance it has to suffer. I'll, I will be amazed if they um, if they're still number two by the time James Harden comes back. Kudos to Mike D'Antoni and the Rockets because that would be just super super impressive to me. Um, as for the Spurs, who are currently third, and I, like I said, I think they're a game and a half of, in front of Minnesota. They just, <laughs> every year I feel like I'm, I'm ready for this. This is the year when they finally kind of, maybe not fall off a cliff, but come back down to earth a little bit. But just year after year after year, they churn out 50-win teams, no matter what's going on. It, this year, the big reason to think that they wouldn't, be quite as good as they usually are is Kawhi Leonard's barely even played and he, he just came back in the last few weeks and yet they're still on track for for another 51 season it's crazy um like I said Leonard just came back but when him and Aldridge are on the floor they've only shared the floor for 98 minutes so far this season so again this is another small sample size but they're plus 9.2 points per 100 possessions the Spurs are in those 98 minutes so uh, that duo is working I think they'll get even better as the season goes along and they kind of feel each other out um Aldridge has a new offensive role this season so I think there will be some adjustment to be made there right now they're when those two are on the floor San Antonio is scoring fewer than 100 points per 100 possessions which is not good I, I think that will get better but San Antonio is also allowing uh, just under 91 points per 100 possessions when those two are on the floor so the defense is already locked in with that duo, like I said, I think the offense will get better. Um, so San Antonio, I don't think is quite as catchable as Houston um, for Minnesota, but I, I think there's still a chance. I mean, <laughs> I said just a couple minutes ago that they surprise me every year, but that it still seems like at some point relying on past his prime Aldridge, past his prime Tony Parker, um, Eventually, maybe somebody will catch him, but it just, I, I don't know, it hasn't happened yet. Um, the case for Minnesota here, to catch either of those teams, I, I think it all comes down to Jimmy Butler. I, ever since he sort of took over the alpha dog role on this team, they have been significantly better. Um, Butler, uh, by, by one metric that I, well, not one metric, I actually averaged seven metrics Last season, a bunch of catch-alls, just, and not the numbers, but the ranks. So, let me see if I can explain this. <laughs> if one player was like fifth in PER, fifth in box plus minus, fifth in Winchester per 48, and fifth in like the other four catch-alls, then his average rank would have been fifth. So, I took the ranks of everyone in the NBA last season, and I averaged those ranks, and by that measure, Jimmy Butler was a top five player last season. Um, I'm not saying he's one of the five best players in the world. It's just that last season, statistically, he was a top five player. I feel like he's sort of finally getting back to that player um, in the last few weeks. And really the last, it's almost been two months now. Um, before November 11th, his usage percentage was under 20. Um, 
And since then, it's 26. And the only West, the only teams in the Western Conference since November 11th with a better net rating than the Timberwolves are the Warriors and the Rockets. And we already went over the case for the Rockets maybe falling off a little bit. Um, as long as Jimmy Butler continues to be the Jimmy Butler of uh, last season, I, th- that is a very, very dangerous team. Um, I think there's still a little bit more to sort out with Andrew Wiggins. I, I tweeted the other day that he's one of the better cutters in the league, but he's just he's using way too many ISOs. If they can get his field goal attempts down a little bit and turn him into more of a, a cutter, I don't I don't know what that would take to convince a max player who was a former number one pick, but that would certainly help their offense. Um, if they were more reliant on Butler and, and Towns to do the scoring, I think they'd be even a little bit better. But things are definitely trending in the right direction for the Timberwolves. I, I think a top three seed is very much in play. I would not bet on a top two seed, but I, I don't think that's out of the question either. So in answer to Brian's question, uh, yes, I do, I do think the Timberwolves have a legit shot at the number three seed. Okay, next we have Josh Patterson, who is at Josh, P-A-T-T-Y, four. And his question is, what is the value of DeRozan improving his three-point shot? And I, I think the surface answer is <laughs> it's very, very valuable. Um, he has traditionally never really shot threes in his career. I, I believe, let me look this up because I don't want to give you guys bad information. Pretty sure he's taking a career high in attempts per game. And he is. Um, he's also shooting a career high percentage in three-point percentage. And one thing that I've pointed out with DeRozan a lot uh, at the beginning of the season, it was something like six or seven straight seasons that the Toronto Raptors had actually been better when De- DeMar DeRozan was on the bench. Now, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, Toronto has a really strong bench that gets to play against other teams' second units who, who aren't quite as strong. Um, but a six-year sample size, with that being the case year after year after year, there starts to be something to that. Um, and I think it had more to do with defense than offense, but certainly um, getting some of his long twos out of the offense didn't hurt. And and that's ultimately the difference, and that's what Josh's question gets to, is replacing some of those long twos with threes has been game-changing. Um, so DeRozan is also posting a career high in offensive box plus minus which is a measure over on basketball reference. It just sort of tries to encapsulate a player's overall offensive um, contribution, and it's not even close. Like his, his offensive box plus minus this year is way higher than it's ever been in any previous season. And the other thing that I think is most important, um, last season, Toronto's offense scored 1.3 points uh, fewer per 100 possessions when DeMar DeRozan was on the bench. So it got worse, but it didn't get much worse when DeRozan wasn't playing. This season, the offensive rating drops 10.4 points um, when DeRozan goes to the bench. So having he's just helping the offense so much more than he has in years past. And that's crazy to say because he's like year in and year out, he's a 20-point-per-game scorer. He hasn't averaged fewer than 20 points since 2012-13. 
So on the surface, you would think this guy, um, oh no, I, excuse me, he has an average fewer, gotta get this back. Oh yeah, I said that right. He has an average fewer than uh, 20 points since 2012-13. So you would think a 20 plus point per game score over the last five seasons, like obviously that guy makes your offense better. But I think this season, it's absolutely true. This season, there was so, there was, or, Previous seasons, there was a little bit of smoke and mirrors to it. Um, this season, they can run a more modern offense with him in the game, and I, I think it's absolutely helping the Raptors. I don't, that's a roundabout way of answering Josh's question, but I think it's absolutely been uh, immensely valuable that he's added a three-point shot to his game. And just it, taking fewer long twos in general is smart practice for any NBA team. Um, okay, Stu... And I pronounced it that way because he spells it S-T-U-U-U. And his handle is S-T-U-R-R-R-T. Um, his question is, what is the current top five rookie of the year ladder look like? And my personal one, I've got Ben Simmons number one. Uh, and I'll explain why here in just a second. I've got Donovan Mitchell number two. I've got Jason Tatum third, Kyle Kuzma fourth, and John Collins fifth. Now the reason I have Ben Simmons number one, um, I actually had a pretty long back and forth about this on Twitter the other day, and I, the person that I had the back and forth with has a question coming up later in the mailbag, so stay tuned for that. Um, I think Simmons' deficiencies it's fair to bring them up. Like, yes, he needs to, I, I, I'm not even going to say needs to. Uh, yes, it's a little bit of a problem that he's not a great shooter. Um, yes, Jason Tatum's advanced numbers have overtaken Simmons. Um, I think Tatum tops him in box plus minus, win shares per 48. Um, I don't think he has him in player efficiency rating, but I, what he, what Simmons is doing from a raw production standpoint is still, like unprecedented there there isn't a single one of the five main stat categories uh points rebounds assists blocks and steals where he isn't productive um if you if you run a search on basketball reference um just for his averages in those five categories or close to his averages maybe you put them like round them down or something the kind of names you consistently come up with are oscar robertson uh, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. Um, he's always near the top in the blocks when when you run searches like that. Um, none of those previous guys could block shots quite like he does. Um, I, I just think what he is doing from a raw production standpoint is incredible. And he's a six foot ten point guard. Now this is getting beyond numbers, but what you can do. <laughs> With a six foot ten point guard, it's just crazy to me. I get that he can't shoot a three coming off the screen, but and I'm I'm, all, I'm already kind of stepping on the toes of the next question uh, or the the later question from um, I think his name is Art about Ben Simmons, but he generates so much gravity just by having the ball that I don't I don't think you necessarily need to have him shooting threes. And I I've, I've said the same thing about Giannis Antetokounmpo a few times this season. When a guy has the ball, yes, you can sag off of him if he can't shoot threes, 
But if you're a 6'10", or in Giannis's case, a 7-foot tall point guard, and you can get to the rim whenever you want, eventually defenses have to pay attention. Sure, they can sag off when you're 18 feet from the rim, but you're, when you're in the paint, like either one of these guys can get to whenever they want. Um, that Sometimes it commands like two or three guys uh, to stop them there. And Simmons is obviously very adept at kicking the ball out in those situations. He gets tons of assists on those driving kicks. Giannis is more of a finish it myself kind of guy when he gets in there, but he's a good passer too. Um, both of them, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and see if I can find that question because I'm giving some of my answer to that one. Um, there it is. Okay. So the, uh, the other question was from Arn, and his handle is Whitewater Arn, A-R-N-E. And he said, will Ben Simmons ever make a three? And that was, that was the crux of his argument is Ben Simmons can't win Rookie of the Year because he hasn't hit a three. Um, <laughs> and I, I kind of, maybe I was a little too condescending on Twitter. I, I retorted, like, when did they change the name of the award to best three-point shooting rookie? Um, I, I just don't think that's relevant to the conversation. But he said, later he says, but really, though, I want to hear more about how he and Greek Freak are successful without shooting well. And that's what I was getting into before I jumped down to his question. Um, Simmons is shooting 73% uh, in the range from zero to three feet to the rim, which is astronomical. Most, most rookies have a hard time staying around 50. He's around 73%. That's crazy. Giannis is even better. He's at 75.9% in that range. So both of those guys are just top-notch finishers. Inside, so once once they sort of break the paint, they have to be paid attention to, or they're going to dunk all over you, um, and they might dunk all over you even if you are paying attention. If you don't, or I mean, if you do, if you send two or three guys, then all of a sudden there's a bunch of shooters open. And I think Philly is smart to play the way that they are. I think most times they have Ben Simmons on the floor, they have him surrounded by a bunch of shooters. Joel Embiid's three-point percentage is down this season, but I, he's still a threat from out there. The other night he hit five, I believe. Um, so you have to pay attention to him at the three-point line. J.J. Redick obviously is, I mean, he's one of the best shooters in the history of the game. Robert Covington is a great shooter. Um, they can also, T.J. McConnell doesn't shoot a lot of threes, but he can space the floor a little bit. The point I'm trying to make is, if you surround Simmons with three or four shooters, I don't think he ever has to make a three because he can, he can just dominate so much attention or, or command so much attention, I should say, once he gets inside that three-point line um, that you can, you can set up those other four guys for wide-open threes all game long, and I think he'll be fine. Now, obviously, <laughs> would it be better if he could shoot threes? Of course. Um, and maybe he will add that eventually. I, my, my comp for Ben Simmons before he came into the NBA was he's, I think he could be a 6'10 Jason Kidd. And I think in a lot of ways he's been that. And Jason Kidd is a guy who late in his career, he had a couple 40% three point shooting seasons, which is something that no one could have predicted early in his career. So is it something that Simmons can add? Yes. And would that help him? Sure. Um, or I shouldn't say sure. Absolutely. It would help him. Uh, I, I think adding at three helps anybody, um, but he doesn't need to. Right now, I think he is still a very, very effective player. And I don't think the Sixers, um, I don't think they are what they are without him. Okay, let me see if I can 
get back to where I was. That was a good question by Stuart and Art. Uh, and I'm actually going to jump back to Stuart's question now because I wasn't quite done with that. Um, so I said number two on my Rookie of the Year ladder was Donovan Mitchell. And he is, he is slowly but surely climbing the advanced stat leaderboards for rookies. He's still not, he's still not top five in many of the advanced stats, but that doesn't prevent me from having, from having him number two just because he has been absurd of late. I, I tweeted out his month-by-month splits the other day, and his development is just crazy. Um, that In December alone, he averaged over 23 points a game and shot 50% from the field against just an absolutely brutal schedule. And I think the thing with Mitchell that goes beyond numbers is there's there's like a demeanor and a confidence with him that I'm not sure anyone else in this rookie class has. I mean, he he has a, like the takeover gene, sort of the killer instinct um, that you want from a star player. It's been amazing. I'm, as most of you know, I, I watch more jazz basketball than any other team in the NBA, and it's been crazy to see him sort of seize the reins of, of the Utah Jazz. Um, he has, he's, he's the go-to guy already. And I, another thing I said the other day was I thought maybe if everything went really well with his development, he'd be this kind of player by like year three or four. And the fact that he's already this player by January of his first season just blows my mind. And if he continues to to uh, be on the trajectory that he's on right now, I, I think he could very well challenge Simmons for Rookie of the Year by the end of this. Um, Tatum, I have third. He his his efficiency is insane for a rookie to still be at this point in the season shooting around fifty percent from three and taking a decent amount of attempts is crazy. He's been so much better defensively. Than I thought he would be. I think Stevens deserves a lot of credit for that, but obviously Tatum does too. I think the one thing that holds him back is you have to wonder what his numbers might look like if he was in Simmons or Mitchell's role, and I I don't think they'd be quite as good. Uh, Dan in our last episode talked about uh, his numbers with both Horford and Irving off the floor, and they were pretty good. But I think I would need to see. A, a bigger sample size of him sort of doing things on his own. And I know the, I know the name of the ward isn't most valuable rookie or who contributes the most, which rookie contributes the most to his team. But I I'm taking Simmons and Mitchell's roles into account when I put them ahead of uh, Tatum Kuzma, another guy, and this, this man, this rookie class is stacked. It's kind of hard to <laughs> pull it apart. Cause I, I think you could make an argument for Kuzma being like anywhere from second to fourth too. I mean, here's another guy who's basically seized control of an offense as a rookie, which is just crazy. And he's had some huge outings too. I think he had a high of 38 the other night. I'm sure some Laker fan will correct me on that if I'm wrong. Um, Mitchell had the 41-point game. It's it's just crazy to see both of those guys just completely commandeer an offense as rookies. I, I Kuzma's another one that I, I would not have guessed would be this good this fast. I, over the summer, his numbers in summer league were eye-popping, but I just kept thinking, okay, it's just summer league. I mean, he, he has to cool down. And then the same thing happened in the preseason. The same thing happened in the first few weeks of this season. And he's just – he had a little bit of a stinker the other night, but in a, on a macro level, he's not cooling down. He's, he's been unbelievable. And then – 
My last one, or my personal number five on the rookie ladder, is John Collins. Um, this is a guy I I, I want to see him play more. Uh, right now, he's at I think maybe twenty four, twenty five minutes a game. Um, I, it's just time for Atlanta to like give him the reins <laughs> and let him play thirty to thirty five minutes and just see what he can do because what he's doing in limited minutes right now is. Super impressive. He leads all rookies in player efficiency rating. It seems like every time I uh, check a box score, he's shot over 50% from the game, grabbed a bunch of rebounds, and blocked a couple shots. When I watch Atlanta, um, he is just so bouncy. And I think Dan made this point several episodes back that he, he looked something like DeAndre Jordan and just sort of the way he moved and the way he bounced around the floor, which is... That in itself is scary, but I think this John Collins has a chance to be an even more skilled version of DeAndre Jordan, which is kind of scary to think about. And he's he's already further along defensively than I thought he would be at this point, just like Tatum. Um, so he's my number five. I, I want to see him play more. Uh, I'm sure you guys could have plenty of qualms with that top five, but that's what I'm going with right now. Just for the sake of argument, I went ahead and gave, or I, I wrote down the top five if it was just based on certain numbers. So if, if Rookie of the Year was chosen by box plus minus, the top five would be Jordan Bell, who has also been uh, amazing. Him, Like Tatum, he is, uh, he gets a lot of help from really, really good teammates. Uh, obviously, he's on the, the greatest team ever assembled. So that certainly helps Jordan Bell, but I think it's time to sort of take note of what he's done too. I, I, even though his role is limited and his minutes are limited compared to some of these other guys, he's been a beast defensively. The passing is really impressive to me too. I, I think eventually we're going to see a starting front court of Draymond Green and Jordan Bell and having a 4-5 combo that can pass the way those two can. Um, that just that Somehow it might make Golden State's offense even more exciting. He's been awesome. Um, number two rookie, according to Box Plus Minus, is Jason Tatum. Number three is Ben Simmons. Number four is John Collins. And number five is Bam Adebayo. Um, and I wish I could remember who this was, but somebody, I think it was Francisco, and I don't know his last name. But he tweeted me the other day and said, you, you need to see what Bam Adebayo, what, what the Heat looked like with Bam Adebayo at the five. Um, and he, he has been awesome. I think there's some things that he can do that Hassan Whiteside can't quite do. Uh, so they, they've unlocked a little bit of, um, a little bit more excitement with their future with Bam Adebayo. I think he's been better than ever or better than expected. Um, if the rookie of the year was chosen by Winchairs for 48 minutes, it would be Bell, uh, Tatum, Collins, Adebayo fourth, and Daniel Tice fifth, which is just Crazy and uh, win shares obviously has a lot to do with how many wins your team has, so that certainly helps uh, Tice that he's on the Celtics. But this is another guy that's just been better than expected. This a lot of that with this rookie class, he's been a beast defensively. Um, he doesn't really make many mistakes on either side of the ball. He's um, just that was just a, a great diamond in the rough type of find for Denny Ainge. And then lastly, if it was chosen by PER, player efficiency rating, it would be John Collins, Jordan Bell, Ben Simmons, uh, Jason Tatum, and Bam Adebayo. All right, so 
Our next question. That was uh, Rookie of the Year ladder from Stuart. And again, mine is Simmons, Mitchell, Tatum, Kuzma, and Collins. <clears throat> so now I'm going to move on. LBJ, whose Twitter handle is at MP0230. He asks, is DeRozan a top five shooting guard? Uh, anybody who's followed me for a few years knows that I've <laughs> I've been kind of hard on DeMar DeRozan. I, I've brought up the net rating thing a lot over the last few years, the long twos, um, the defensive issues. So this may come as a surprise to some of the people who followed me for a while, but I think this season he's absolutely a top five shooting guard in the NBA. Um, I think he's been a little bit better defensively. His assists are around five. I, I love anybody who passes, really. <laughs> um, and the three-pointers, again, have just been game-changing for him. The only shooting guards uh, in the NBA this season who have a better box plus-minus than DeRozan are James Harden, Victor Oladipo, and Jimmy Butler, who we can argue is a small forward. So it might just be Harden and Oladipo better than DeRozan, at least according to that stat. Um, and, and box plus minus is not a number that has historically liked DeMar DeRozan. So for him to jump as high up in the ranks as he has is, again, it's a, it's a testament to all the aspects of his game that he has improved and um, in some cases replaced. He replaced a lot of those long twos, and that helped him a lot. I think he's certainly top five. I think the other guys in the conversation, um, another guy who box plus minus kind of strangely doesn't like is Clay Thompson, but he's obviously in the conversation um, year after year after year, 20 plus points per game, 40 plus percent from three, um, draws the toughest perimeter defensive assignments just about every game. He's He has to be there. Um, I don't know if he's definitively top five, but he's definitively like in the conversation for top five. Um, another one in the conversation is Bradley Beal. He's been really good. Gary Harris. Um, and then Devin Booker, another guy that advanced stats don't love, but the raw numbers that he's putting up and the age that he's putting at which he's putting them up is, is crazy. I, I think he is already challenging or knocking on the door of top five shooting guard status. But, um, I wasn't planning to do this. If I had to pick a top five right now as it stands, um, I'm just, for the purposes of this discussion, I'm going to say Butler's a small forward. So I'll say Harden. Um, gosh, this is tough. I'm going to say Harden, DeRozan, Thompson, um, Oladipo, and Beal. And the, the the distance between each of those guys, well, with the exception of Harden, the distance between the guys after Harden is like razor thin. Um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a really tough call. But, yes, I do think DeRozan uh, this season has certainly been a top five shooting guard. Josh Gleave, his handle is at J-O-S-H-G-L-E-A-V-E. He asks, should Cantor's nickname be Turkish Delight? And... <laughs> Uh, my immediate answer is yes, I love it, but I think this is a player who at this point deserves multiple nicknames. Um, I am also, I have some photoshops, maybe I'll tweet them out when I tweet out this episode link tomorrow. Um, and I think part of the charm of my photoshops is how bad they are, so just keep that in mind. 
But some other nicknames for Ennis Cantor that I've used in years past. Ennis the Menace seems like an obvious one. Um, and then my favorite, it's a little bit more off the beaten path, the path, the Cantor Man. And that's hearkening back to uh, the old Willy Wonka with Gene Wilder, the Candyman can. So we got to go with the Cantor Man can. But yes, Turkish Delight uh, should certainly be in that conversation. Um, <clears throat> Jacob Douglas at J Douglas three zero. Who is the Eastern Conference's starting shooting guard in the All Star Game? Depot, DeRozan, and Beal all playing well. So this gets back to the qu- a couple questions back. Is DeRozan a top five shooting guard? It's pretty similar. Um, this is another tough one, but I, I think I'm going to go with DeRozan here as well. I think Bradley Beal has been fantastic uh, in John Wall's absence, but they're, I, I think last I checked, the Wizards are still, I think they were five and six in games that Wall didn't play in. And, you know, I, I, you can't put that all on the shoulders of Beal. He's, he was really good in his absence, but um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to factor that in whether I should or not. I was like, very, very gung-ho Oladipo to start the All-Star game um, as recently as like a week ago, probably, maybe two weeks ago. Uh, but his missing a few games, that um, hurts his case a little bit. I think he'll still be an All-Star. We're just talking about who's the starting shooting guard at this point. And DeRozan has been a little bit more durable. And the numbers in DeRozan's last 10 games, which is where I think he has sort of seized control of this debate. 29 points, 4.3 assists, 3.8 rebounds, 2.13s made, shooting 50.3% from the field, 46.7% from three, and 85.9% um, from the free throw line. And that's on eight and a half free throw attempts per game. So, so 29 points uh, per game in his last 10 and in the middle of the, that chunk of 10 games is a random seven-point outing. Um, so you take that out of the mix, and he's like well over 30. He's been absurd lately. And I, I just the fact that he's doing it while hitting threes, while playing a little bit more defense, while still distributing um, as sort of like the secondary playmaker after Kyle Lowry, I, I, he, has, he has definitely reached another level this season. And I, if I had to pick right now, I'm going to go with him as the starting shooting guard. Uh, Paul Liam or Paul Liam, maybe at P A U L I A M underscore. That's his handle. Do you see a trade coming for the heat? Um, these questions are so much better for Dan who, um, you guys may or may not, I, I think bleacher report has him right a sort of fake trades piece every week. So he's got to be coming up with this stuff left and right. So his brain is very much geared for finding trades, certainly more so than mine. Um, I think Miami has a lot of movable contracts, and I I think they might have had that in the back of their minds when they signed a bunch of a lot of these guys this past summer. And obviously Pat Riley's been known to make a big splash. He was the orchestrator of that Miami Heat big three. So I wouldn't put it past them. Um, I also really like some of the the front court combinations that do not include Hassan Whiteside. I think Kelly Olynyk and James Johnson is a really interesting combo. Um, 
like I said earlier, and like Francisco told me on Twitter, Bam Bayo has been really good. I think he can move better defensively on the perimeter than Whiteside can. I, Whiteside's obviously a, a pretty good rim protector and takes up a lot of space inside, but I think you can do more with switching and stuff like that without Abeo. I also think he has a much higher ceiling as a passer. Um, so really, any combination of those three guys, Olenek, uh, Adebayo, and Johnson, and I even like James Johnson at the five a lot. I don't know how much they've done that this season, but uh, whenever they do, it's I think that's super intriguing. And obviously, it's a very switchy lineup, and you can have Johnson run some point center. Uh, anyway, I think the guy... <laughs> That's most likely to get moved is is probably Whiteside. That's why I'm talking about all this front court stuff. But the problem is, and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, is right now it just seems so hard to find a trade destination for big guys like this. It's like <clears throat> seems like half the teams in the league have a big man they would like to trade, um, but there's just there's just not much of a market for it. And I think that's probably the case with Whiteside. I still think it's kind of interesting to think about him with Milwaukee, which is a rumor that's come up a a decent amount over the last couple of years. Obviously, that doesn't really help Milwaukee's spacing issues, but the length on defense with uh, Whiteside and Anadokounmpo, Middleton, and Parker when he's back, uh, Bledsoe's pretty long for a a point guard. that's very, very interesting defensively. So if I, I think the safe bet in terms of the answering Powell's actual question, do you see a trade coming for the Heat? To me, the safe bet is always to, to say, no, there will not be a trade for basically any team in the league. Because I just, I think it's always more likely that a trade does not happen. Um, but they, Miami, just because they have a few movable contracts, I, I think some of the big guys fit a little bit better than Whiteside. I would say they're one of the more likely candidates to make a move this season. I think another one that's likely is Denver. Um, I think Chicago, despite this little run there, maybe because of this little run they're on, they need to make a trade. Uh, certainly somebody would like Miritich at this point. He's he's drummed up his trade value a, a bit, I would think, since he came back. Um, so those, I, I would definitely have Miami in that sort of bunch of teams that I think are are more likely to make a trade than than other teams. Okay, Brandon Gann, at B underscore Gann. He asks, best possible trade for Cleveland this year? So another trade question. Um, my thought on Cleveland is the only way they should make a trade is if it's like an absolute home run swing of a trade. I I don't think they're at a point where they should be looking for like seventh or eighth man who can kind of fill out the rotation. Um, maybe if like things go horribly wrong in the next month in New Orleans and Boogie Cousins suddenly becomes available, maybe that's someone that you offer the Nets pick and Jetty Osman and I, I don't know. They'd have to give up a couple of bigger contracts to match Boogie's salary. Um but they'd also have to unload whatever future assets they have. And that's the Nets pick. That's Osman. Um, if that kind of a deal becomes available, I say tentatively go for it. And the reason I say tentatively is because it doesn't seem like there's any guarantee that LeBron's coming back to Cleveland. And this draft, by all accounts, and like I've said in previous episodes, I'm not 
I'm not great at keeping up with draft prospects until about like April or May is when I really start to dive in. So take this with a grain of salt. But from what I've seen and from what I've read, this group has a chance to be really, really special. Um, I will say I have seen a lot of Luka Doncic. I, I watched every game he played at Eurobasket. Um, I've kept tabs on him for the last two seasons, really, in, in the EuroLeague. I actually, one of his teammates for Real Madrid, JC Carroll, is a fellow Wyoming guy. So I've talked to him about Doncic a couple times, and he's, he's told me that he's just, it's insane what he can do at his age. Um, uh, he is a franchise player, in my opinion. And DeAndre Ayton, from all I hear, is he, he looks great. Marvin Bagley's obviously been super productive for Duke. There, there is, I mean, he, even if the Cleveland pick, or not the Cleveland pick, the Nets pick that Cleveland has, even if that doesn't net you a top three pick, there's a bunch of interesting guys in this draft, even in like the top 10. Like Muhammad Bamba, I think, has a chance to be uh, a pretty good big man. Trey Young has been unbelievable. Um, at the college level, and he's at, he's already drawing Stephen Curry comparisons, which is crazy. So if you have any inkling that LeBron's leaving, it sure would be nice to sort of kickstart a rebuild with one of those guys. Um, you know, especially if you can if you can get into the top three with Doncic, Aiton, or Bagley, or um, you know, top five. Maybe you can still have a shot at Michael Porter, assuming his back comes all the way back. Uh, so it's it's a tough call for Cleveland, and I don't really. It's it's a really weird position for Kobe Altman to be in his first year as Cleveland's GM because, you know, if a superstar does become available and you can get him and you, you can sort of clear the cupboard of assets to get him, does it make LeBron more likely to stay? Does it make it more likely that you win a title this year? Um, probably. <laughs> but you're still, you're still staring down the Warriors. Like, do you think a core of... I mean, would you pick LeBron, Boogie, and Isaiah Thomas against the Warriors? Um, obviously, I think they'd be better. They'd have a better chance of winning than they would without Cousins. But it's it's certainly not a guarantee. It's a weird <laughs> balancing act or a tightrope to try to walk. So, gosh, if it's a tough spot, I um, I would say if a home run is available. Maybe go for it. That's like as wishy-washy an answer as I can give, Brandon. But <laughs> that's the best I can do. If it was me in the front office, I would have a really hard time parting with that Nets pick. Even though Brooklyn has been better this season than I think a lot of us would have expected a couple years ago. Um, Art is great. His handle is at H-U-G-G-Y-D. Huggy D. When and who... Uh, he probably means when and to whom will Lou Williams and DeAndre Jordan be traded? Um, so this is an interesting question because suddenly the Clippers are only a game and a half out of the playoffs. And they just got Blake Griffin back. Obviously, they're not going to get Patrick Beverly back at any point this year. But they have sort of stabilized the ship after a couple of weeks ago. It seemed like absolutely they should be tanking. Um, so if they're going to chase that playoff spot for a while, they might not trade either of those guys. Uh, if it falls apart before the deadline, uh, the DeAndre Jordan and Milwaukee rumors have been interesting to me. Like Whiteside, obviously Jordan doesn't help with Milwaukee shooting. 
Um, but I mean, it's really all the same points I made with Whiteside. I, I think they could be nightmarish defensively if he's there. Um, at the same time, and another thing I tweeted earlier today is John Henson's been really good in that role. So maybe they should sort of tread lightly, Milwaukee, uh, if they want to go at another big guy. Lou Williams, um, I looked around the league for teams that could use a, a scoring punch off the bench. And one team that's super interesting to me for Lou Williams is the team he's already played for, and that's the Philadelphia 76ers, who are, they are really, really good when Ben Simmons, Robert Covington, and Joel Embiid are all on the floor together. When that bench sort of takes over the bulk of the lineup, it's, uh, it's pretty ugly for Philly. So if they could somehow get Lou Williams in there to be like your scoring spark off the bench, I, I would be very in on Philly, like moving up to fifth or sixth in the East, even um, if they can make a deal like that. Now, I don't know. Lou Williams isn't worth the first round pick that Philly's getting from the Lakers. Um, he might not be worth the first round pick that Philly's getting from Sacramento for 2019. Um, it would just depend a lot on what the Clippers would want. Like, is Timothy Lawawu Cabarro an interesting enough prospect paired with like two of Philly's a thousand second round picks? Uh, I I don't I don't know if that'd be enough to get it done. There's probably some team somewhere that would give up a late first for Lou Williams at this point. Uh, he's still an, a ridiculous scorer. It blows my mind what he can do off the bench. Um, so maybe Philly. I mean, they'd have to they'd have to give up something of value to get Lou Williams. A lot of it would just depend on how Philly or how the Clippers feel about some of Philly's young guys. But that's in terms of a destination, um, that's a really interesting one to me for Lou Williams. Okay, next we have Jonathan Turnbow at T U R N B O W underscore J T. <clears throat> Who makes the playoffs in the West? Final answer. And I if I had to pick right now, I would say it's just the current top eight. Um, right now, the West goes Warriors, Rockets, Spurs, Timberwolves, Thunder, Blazers, Nuggets, and Pelicans. And like I said a second ago, the Clippers are a game and a half behind the Pelicans. I think the Jazz are maybe another game or two behind the Clippers. I just, it's hard for me to see either one of those teams uh, catching New Orleans and Denver and, and Portland. The Clippers, like I said, they've been better. Um, I still just think if you're relying heavily on guys like Austin Rivers and um, they've had to play a lot of rookies. Now they're getting healthy, so maybe they'll have to play a lot of those rookies even less. But Blake Griffin's always had issues with his health. Um, I, I don't know. I just it, It's hard for me to put them in. Utah, another team that's had a lot of uh, issues with health. And while Donovan Mitchell's been awesome, it's... Not often a recipe for success when you're relying that heavily on a rookie. I just don't think they have enough offense beyond him and Rodney Hood to to jump up, you know, two or three games and catch the Pelicans. If I had to pick one team from that current top eight that might fall out, I would actually go all the way to the sixth, the sixth place Blazers. Um, I just there's not a lot on that roster beyond Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum to me. I think most people on the surface would say their third best player is probably Yusuf Nurkic. But I've done some research on the Blazers this season just because they've been 
they've been worse than expected, I think is a nice way to say it, offensively. And basically every time I try to figure out why, the the arrows always point back to Yusef Nurkic. Um, the research I did today was he's 10th in the entire NBA in post-ups used. So, you know, one of the most regularly posted up players in the league, and he scores 0.66 points per post-up. Um, the only player who scores fewer points per post-up and has at least 50 uh, total post-ups is Andre Drummond. And he has kind of... Um, He's kind of found a way to neutralize how bad he is in the post because he's become such a good passer this year. I, you can't say that as much about Yusuf Nurkic. His, what he's done to them offensively and then just trying to like force-feed him the ball for possessions that just um, objectively are not smart, uh, it's, it's really hurt that offense. And again, after I mean, even after those three guys, Evan Turner's been... Feisty since Damian Lillard went down, but I, I think history would suggest that um, he's not great. <laughs> um, so yeah, other than like those, for, and Shabazz Napier's been good this year too. I should add him um, to this discussion. But to me, that roster kind of falls off a cliff after Lillard and McCollum. And right now they're sixth. And and like I said, if I had to pick right now, I would I would say the current top eight are the the eight that get in. Um, but if I was forced to pick one who might slide out, I would go ahead and say the Blazers. Um, Nate, whose handle is at Nate O, I believe. Number one draft prediction. Who do you believe should be the number one draft pick and why? And I kind of already answered this, but I'm going to go with Luka Doncic. Yes, DeAndre Ayton, uh, Marvin Bagley, Michael Porter, before he got hurt, super impressive physical prospects, super productive in college. Trey Young has been like insanely productive in college, uh, unprecedented levels of just sort of raw production from him. But Doncic is 18 years old still. He's going to turn 19 in February. He's averaging 22.9 points, 7.9 rebounds, 6.4 assists, 1.5 steals per 36 minutes. He's shooting 47.5% from the field, 33.8% from three, and 84.8% from the free throw line in the second best league in the world. Um, he is doing what he is doing is against pros. And you know, the what the the numbers that these college guys are putting up are certainly impressive, but there is a definite jump up in competition from the NCAA to the EuroLeague or to Liga ACB and which is where Doncic is he's he's Real Madrid's best player as an 18 year old um, historically one of the best teams in the world outside the NBA this level of production in that league at that age is uh, it's unprecedented most of these young guys we get or that the NBA gets from Europe, um, if they're coming over at 18 or 19, they had a tiny role on their EuroLeague team. Like they maybe played 10 minutes a game, averaged four or five points. It's to see somebody <laughs> doing what he's doing at 18 against seasoned pros is just crazy to me. And I think 
I'm, I'm hesitant to say anybody's a can't miss prospect, uh, especially as someone who, like I admitted earlier, I'm not a, I'm not a bona fide draft expert. Um, with what he has already done over in the Euro League and in Eurobasket, it's hard for me to see him being bad. So that's, that's my number one pick, um, and those are my reasons. Second Dan, whose Twitter handle is at SecondDan underscore. Do the Celtics or Raptors have the better chance of making it past the Cavs? I'm going to go with the Raptors here. Um, Boston has been proving me <laughs> wrong a lot, uh, basically ever since Gordon Hayward went down. Before the season, I thought they'd have some issues with continuity because they had turned over pretty much the whole roster. But I thought, you know, the talent at the top with uh, Horford, Irving, and Hayward, like that was going to be enough to still make them very good. When Hayward went down, I did a video with Dan for NBA Math, um, and it was actually hosted by Brian Sampson, who gave me one of my questions earlier for this episode. And I, we adjusted the win, the over-under win totals for Boston. And I think I was like 41 maybe for the Celtics because I just thought all that turnover, Kyrie Irving and Al Horford are really your only stars now. And everybody else is like young guys. Jason Tatum was a rookie. Jalen Brown was second-year player. Uh, Shemi Ojele, rookie. Daniel Tice, rookie. It's just It blows me away that they're as good as they are. And maybe I should start respecting that but I, I feel like at some point that lack of experience has to catch up with the Celtics and it seems like the playoffs are as likely a time as any uh, when that might happen the Raptors on the other hand this is a, I mean they have all the continuity in the world um, they have pretty much the same bunch together uh, as last season DeRozan and Lowry have been together for years um, Valanchunas has been there for years. Serge Ibaka is a relatively new addition, but they got him in the middle of last season, so they've been able to develop some chemistry with him too. Like I mentioned earlier, they have a strong bench. Um, DeLon Wright is good. OG Ananobi has been another rookie who's been way better than expected. Um, Jakob Pertl, who could be their starting center within a year or two. That team is deep. Um, that team has chemistry. I think... You know, obviously, I'm probably going to pick the Cavs to go to the finals and represent the East. But if I had to pick one team uh, that might challenge them, I, the Raptors are looking like a, a safer and safer pick there. Okay, Brian Ayers at what a or what underscore a underscore b a. He asks, "How does Maxi Kleber's performance skill set so far compare to other international rookies in the past?" I thought this was a super interesting question. Um, <clears throat> I haven't watched the Mavericks enough. I've seen Kluber play maybe two or three times this season, um, and he's looked solid to me. What what jumps out to me is when I see when I when I check Mavericks box scores, his block numbers are crazy. I think he's had two five block games already. Um, I didn't know much about Kluber coming into the season. I, I would not have guessed he'd be the kind of guy who'd have five blocks in a game and do that more than once. So, and he can shoot a little bit too. So what I did was I took Maxi Kleber's true shooting percentage and his block percentage. I ran it through the player season finder. Um, the only other person not born in the U.S. 
to have at least as high a true shooting percentage and block percentage as Kleber in their rookie season is Arvidas Sabonis, <laughs> who legendary Hall of Fame player. Um, now, I don't think Kleber is, I don't think he has Arvidas Sabonis skill or ceiling. Um, Sabonis is one of the greatest passing big men of all time, in addition to the shooting and the blocks. Um, but suffice to say, Kleber has been better. Uh, this is like the, becoming the theme of this podcast, better than expected rookies. Um, and I think a combination of blocking and shooting threes, that's, that's like the next wave of big men. Um, it's going to be all over the place soon. So if you, if I had to pick a, an international rookie to compare him to, it might be Sabonis, even though I, like I said, I don't think he's near the same skill level, but he, he does some similar things. Okay, um, this is another one from Brian Ayers, uh, at what underscore A underscore BA. Which trade partner or partners make the best, make the most sense for Dallas in dealing Harris, Berea, Matthews, or Medry, and what return should they hope for? I don't have, I don't have a lot of specific destinations for those guys. I do think all four of them should probably be on the trading block. Dallas has been pretty good lately I think they've won four straight um Dennis Smith's been awesome in that stretch Dirk Nowitzki is like found yet another fountain of youth it just continues to blow my mind um so I think they should be trading those vets and trying to get worse I think they need to uh solidify their draft position if you could add Luka Doncic to Dennis Smith man or Marvin Bagley to Dennis Smith uh that's that has a chance to be a really really good duo going forward. So yes, they should be thinking about trading those guys. Um, I don't think a single one of the ones that Brian mentioned nets a first round pick. Um, maybe second rounders. Devin Harris, JJ Barea, Wesley Matthews, and Salamedri. Again, that's who he uh, suggested. The only one who might get you a first rounder and it's just because he's been so absurd this season is JJ Barea. But I think even that is a very long shot. He's, he's 33 years old. I don't think any team's going to part with a first round pick for a 33 year old backup point guard. I could be wrong. Um, one team that I thought was interesting for him, Barea would be the wizards. Uh, Thomas Sadoransky's, been pretty solid as a backup point guard this season, but that's another team that just it's a great starting five, really, really a starting four because Markeith Morris has been kind of missing in action at times this season. But when they go to their bench, they have some problems. Maybe you could play Sadoransky at the two a little bit more. Um, still have Ubri at the three. Maybe if you have Berea, you can knock Jody Meeks out of the rotation. I think that makes Washington better. Um, if they could get Berea for like two second round picks, that would be super interesting. Uh, the one team that I thought was kind of interesting for Wes Matthews would be the Timberwolves. Um, obviously, it's talked about a lot in NBA fan circles that Tom Thibodeau doesn't like to use a bench. Um, but right now, the only wing playing off the bench for the Timberwolves really is Jamal Crawford. And he's almost more of a combo guard than a wing. If you could have Wes Matthews to come in and provide some spacing for, I don't know, 20, 22 minutes a game, uh, that's a super interesting addition too. Again, I don't think Dallas is going to be able to get 
huge returns for any of those guys, but I, I think they should probably still be looking at deals just because they need losses right now. Um, because it's all about the future for the Mavericks. This is the first time they've really tried a conventional rebuild with young guys and collecting assets. And I, I think the more young, interesting players you can add to Dennis Smith, the better. Slow Cafe 07. <clears throat> His handle is at Slow Cafe 07X1. Is OKC's second unit better with Mello than with Paul George? Um, yet another team that probably still needs to figure some, some things out rotation-wise, and I think that's something that they should certainly try. Um, let Mello just sort of be his old New York Denver self with bench-heavy units and you know completely take over the offense. It, it was never, um, or I should say it wasn't often, a, a smart plan of attack by the Nuggets or the Knicks to just completely entrust Mello with the offense. But if he's if he's given that much freedom against backups, I think it could be very interesting. So I will say they should at least give it a shot. There's still plenty of time to experiment. Um, at Jose Gabriel, um, and his handle is actually at J Gabriel Velez, V-E-L-E-Z. He just says, J.J. Barea, your thoughts. Um, I should have put this one behind the, the other Barea question, but he's been amazing. Um, 33 years old and having, without question, the best season of his career. It's just uh, it's crazy to see a guy take a leap like that at age 33. Here is the list of numbers this season in which J.J. Barea is posting career highs. Box plus minus, so the catch-all that tries to sort of encapsulate everything you do as a player. Offensive box plus minus, win shares per 48, player efficiency rating. Uh, so those are all catch-alls. Also posting a career high in three-point attempt rate, assist percentage, points per 36 minutes, assist per 36 minutes, and three-point percentage. Just like off the charts, <laughs> the best season of his career by a long shot. Um, he's averaging 18.9 points, 9.4 assists, 4.9 rebounds per 36 minutes, shooting 44.5% from the field and 39.1% from three. Um, like I said earlier, if he's, if he is suddenly your backup point guard, a team that's maybe lacking some punch offensively, he could certainly help. And the more I think about it, the more I like that idea of him on the Wizards. Um, and I don't think it has to be at the expense of Thomas Sadoransky, who's been good this season. I think you can play Beret at the one, Sadoransky at the two, and Ubre at the three. Um, so, yeah, he's, in answer to your question, Jose, he's been fantastic this season. Okay, the last one I'm going to do today, um, and I apologize if I did not get to your questions here on the podcast. But after I, uh, after I get this all produced and put up, I'll, I'll try and get to some of the other questions. Steven, at Ball is Life 703 I'd actually like to know what Simmons' analytics are without Embiid on the court. His TPA for sure has to drop a ton. Um, I do not have his TPA, total points added, over at NBA Math without Embiid on the floor. But generally speaking, the Sixers have not been good when it's 
Simmons on the floor and Embiid not on the floor. Um, Philly is scoring 103.9 points per 100 possessions uh, in those situations, but they are allowing 113, which is a net rating of minus 9.1. So, yes, the 76ers have been pretty bad uh, when Joel Embiid is on the floor and Ben Simmons isn't. Simmons, personally, he's still averaging, in those minutes, he's still averaging 17.3 points, 8.9 rebounds, and 7.5 assists per 36 minutes. Um, So those raw numbers are still super impressive, obviously. Uh, But his true shooting percentage, when when Embiid is not on the floor, is 47, which is really bad. And closer to where I thought he would be uh, before the season started. I thought he would... My idea of Simmons was like, he's going to average 12, 6, and 6, and maybe have like a high 40s true shooting percentage. So kind of what Lonzo Ball has been um, this season. He's blown those expectations out of the water, but he's a little bit closer to that without uh, Embiid. He's still scoring like way more than I than I would have guessed. Um, and the assists and rebounds are even higher than I thought they would be too, but... General answer to the question is Philly is not good. Um, Simmons is less efficient when Embiid is off the floor. He is certainly a very, very important part of what they're doing. And another, like I said earlier, when those two are both on the floor, um, Philly is really good. And when you add Covington, they're really, really good. So if they could, if they could beef up their bench a little bit, um, I'd still be pretty confident that they'll make the postseason. Anyway. <laughs> That was fun. Um, Gosh, I feel like I answered maybe half the questions you guys sent in, but we're already over an hour, and you can probably tell I'm starting to lose my voice. Uh, It's quite a bit different to not have a co-host here with you. Hopefully, it wasn't too painful. Uh, I appreciate anyone who uh, indulged me on this solo mailbag. Hopefully, I answered the questions uh, adequately, and if you have any more uh, as always, feel free to contact me on Twitter at Andrew D. Bailey. Uh, Dan is at Dan Favalli, F-A-V-A-L-E. The show's at Hardwood Knox. The sponsor is at NBA underscore math. Uh, as always, review the show, rate the show, tell your friends to subscribe, coerce your friends into subscribing, blackmail them into subscribing. Um, whatever it takes, we would appreciate it. Until next time, we leave you with a shout out. To be no Udri. Hello, I'm Joe Cordell of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. Here are a few quick divorce tips that we provide our clients. Number one, don't move out of your house just because your wife tells you to. Remember, that's your house too. And number two, don't blow through the financial statements that you file with the court. These are key exhibits, and they often make or break your case. And number three, watch the social networking. Expect your wife's lawyer to do a thorough online search. And incidentally, this is a two-way street. Now a bonus tip. Partner with your attorney in assembling evidence. You're one of the two leading experts on your life and marriage. Your attorney needs your input to achieve your goals. And finally, talk to your attorney before taking action. Good luck. Contact Cordell and Cordell to schedule an appointment with one of our firm's San Francisco area attorneys, a partner men can count on. Online at CordellCordell.com. Offices in San Francisco, San Mateo, and San Jose. Se habla español. Legal services available in English and Spanish. Kimberly Llewellyn licensed in California. 
five-hour tea with caffeine from green tea leaves. It's delicious, energizing, and comes in three amazing flavors. With zero sugar and four calories, it fits your life. With its compact size and portability, it goes where you go, to the campsite, the hiking trail, the beach, without weighing you down. Five-hour tea, caffeine from green tea leaves. Release your natural sight from the makers of five-hour energy. For more information, visit fivehourenergy.com. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.